Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tavanen, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Chris Massini welcomes the next Spokane Community College Hagen Center Diversity Dialogues speaker, Luis Rodriguez. Two of Vern Wyndham's recent From the Studio guests, Sandpoint Conservatory Director Karen Wiedemeyer and Spokane Symphony Music Director James Lowe, offer their observations and strategies for dealing with the current state of pandemic affairs through engagement with music. A particularly sublime moment from a young pianist and some Spokane Symphony sounds complete the oral picture on this edition of Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. My guest today is Luis J. Rodriguez. Born in El Paso, Texas, Rodriguez grew up in Watts and East Los Angeles, a gang member and drug user at the age of 12. By the time he turned 18, Rodriguez had lost 25 of his friends to gang violence, drug overdoses, shootings, and suicide. He's the author of two award-winning autobiographical accounts of his experiences with gang violence and addiction. It Calls You Back, An Odyssey Through Love, Addiction, Revolutions, and Healing, and Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A. Rodriguez is also the author of several other books of poetry and prose, including most recently From Our Land to Our Land, Essays, Journeys, and Imaginings from a Native Chicanx Writer. For close to 40 years, Rodriguez has been going to prisons, juvenile lockups, and jails to facilitate writing workshops, poetry readings, talks, and healing circles. Luis J. Rodriguez is the next speaker in Spokane Community College's Hagen Center series, Diversity Dialogues, Conversations About Race and Equity. He'll be hosting a virtual event on Wednesday, May 12th. Luis Rodriguez, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I want to start by briefly touching on sort of what I alluded to in the intro, your experiences growing up, which you talk about in Mm -hmm. your memoirs. So you grew up in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, which was sort of the genesis of what we think of as sort of gang culture in uh, in America. So how did you get pulled into that lifestyle at such a young age? I think I I call it the empties that generally exist, Um, empties within one person, but also within family, within community. If there's not enough resources, if there's poverty in the community, if there's discrimination, if there's tracking in school, so all the kids from my neighborhood were put in the poorest classes. If we have these kind of things, as well as family dynamics, you know, the father is probably not there, or maybe the parents are working too much. Uh, maybe there's abuse, maybe there's other things going on. And this impacts an individual. So I think every kid responds differently to things. For some reason, when I was really young, the gang attracted me. I was really taken by their toughness, the way that they were cool, the way that they could be respected and feared. And that shows how empty I was as a kid. You know what I'm saying? 
And I wanted to be part of something that people could look at and maybe even feared, which is a distorted view of the world. But that's what I was at about 10 or 11 years old. Yeah. One of the many things that struck me in reading your first memoir, Always Running, is how you describe the police as sort of just another gang in the neighborhood, one that had, you know, this additional power of institutional authority. And so you had run-ins, obviously, with uh, police officers very early on. Can you talk about how that element influenced the the neighborhood? Well, uh, one thing you should know is that when the book came out, Always Running, which was 27 years ago, maybe 28 years, yeah. um, there was people that were saying, you're making this up. Please don't do this. I mean, you don't know how many people just couldn't believe that police were this way. Yeah. And now, of course, we're in a time when the police is an issue. How bad they've been and how you know it got worse over the years the militarization of the police more killings of people and i wanted to point out that the seeds were planted many 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 years ago even before i came around but in the 60s and 70s it was very clear the demarcation between power and who controlled uh our communities and the communities that didn't have any power so really intense poverty was surrounded by a lot of prosperity and it was racial and class. So you can see why there would be tensions. And the police, unfortunately, I felt was like the army of the well-off people versus the not-so-well-off people. That's the way it felt like. The way they came out there was the over-policing, the beatings that they would do, arresting, detaining kids from seven years old on, uh, just for anything, just so that when they finally get in some kind of trouble, they would end up in a juvenile facility or something. Um, and and then the killings. I lost four friends, close friends, to police killings. These these were four persons that were killed unarmed hmm. by police. Hmm. And so that says a lot about the kind of world, the policing that we had, the kind of policing we have today, and why I think it needs to definitely be reimagined and completely changed. I'm talking with Luis Rodriguez. He's a writer and community and urban peace activist and the next guest in the Hagen Center's Diversity Dialogue series through Spokane Community Colleges. You begin your career in writing as a journalist and then as a poet and memoirist and telling your own story. So I'm curious what drew you to writing and then made you feel like you had a story that was worth sharing that other people would connect with? Well, it was I was the weird homie that loved books. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nobody that loved books. My own family members didn't love books. I gravitated towards books. I did it when I was very young, when I didn't know how to speak English very well. I eventually learned by reading books, of course, watching TV, radio, hearing radio, but books are very important. And even when I was very highly troubled, I tell the story about when I was homeless in the streets of L.A. and I was on heroin and I even had a 22 handgun just to mug people to get money because I was a criminally inclined kid and I don't mind telling people that I'm completely changed over 50 years, but I was that kind of kid. Still, what when my saving grace was a downtown library in LA, the central library, I would walk in there and just, just love those books. I would spend hours. It was my refuge. I read books. I never imagined I would read because again, there wasn't that many there was no bookstores in my neighborhood. There was a really small library with hardly any books. The Central Library had Ray Bradbury. I loved all that science fiction. I read mm. uh, Charles Webb like 20 times. It's a children's book, but I read it a lot. And I read all those black 
uh, a writer's books that came out of the 60s, you know, from James Baldwin to Eldridge Cleaver to George Jackson, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X. I was eating those books up. They were very instrumental in me having the imagination that maybe I could write. And that's a hard leap to get to. Yeah, I was fortunate that I made that leap. A lot of people I'm sure might have that. Who knows? I had that. I started writing in jail in juvenile hall. When other people were drawing or playing cards or whatever, I started to write just my thoughts, my feelings. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was putting things down on paper. And I think that that's what was the seed of eventually getting me to think that there was another option in my life that didn't seem clear. Nobody was telling me I could do this. There was no path, but I it was compelling to me that I could be a writer and maybe tell my own story. So you started off telling your own story in memoir and in poetry, mm-hmm. and then, you know, over the decades, it seems like there's been something of a shift. So I, I wanted to read just one sentence from the introduction mm. to your latest book, From Our Land to Our Land. You say, like millions of Americans, I'm demanding a new vision, a qualitatively different direction for this country, one for the shared well-being of everyone, one with beauty, healing, poetry, imagination, and truth. So that's how you sort of set up your latest book, which is, you know, you've gone past telling your own story, mm-hmm. and now you're moving towards this activism. So how are you mm-hmm. using those skills as a writer, as a teacher, uh, to move toward that vision? Well, one of the things that happened as a teenager is I was also very attracted with social justice. The idea that we could have a just world was always another compelling thing that brought me out of the gang in many ways, um, as well as having some passion for writing and, and having an art. Uh, it, came, it comes together in my life, and that's important because now I'm not just speaking for me individually, but for a whole world that can be responsive and attentive to young people like me. And uh, and I think it's also about how do we align ourselves as human beings, but also in governance, because I don't think our government is aligned to uh, meeting people's needs. Uh, there's a battle about it, because I think the basic thing that we align our government to is the bottom line. What we need to have is governance, which is really aligning all our resources and wealth to needs. So I'm trying to get people to reimagine, just like all the youth have been saying since the George Floyd protests and everything else, they've been saying, reimagine, please reimagine prisons, reimagine uh, our, our governance. I think we're there. Imagination to me is the way to start. The feminine end of it, that part that says, here's the vision, um, reflecting, thinking about what can be done, what's possible. And then, and then the masculine comes in, how do you make it happen? My guest has been writer, community, and urban peace activist, mentor, healer, youth, and arts advocate, Luis J. Rodriguez. He's the next guest in the Hagen Center's Diversity Dialogue series through Spokane Community College, for which Spokane Public Radio is a media partner. He'll be hosting a virtual event on Wednesday, May 12th. You can find more information at scc.spokane.edu slash Hagen Center. Luis, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, I had a great time. Thank you. We take pride here at KPBX in showcasing the work of regional musicians and music students. 
While hosting and producing these performances is a continuing joy, every so often there's a combination of music and performer that provides a unique moment of delight. This week brought one of those moments as we welcomed Whitworth University student Polina Bemanov to the Piano Bench program. One of her pieces was this, Little Girl Blue, a Richard Rogers song as arranged by jazz great Oscar Peterson. Enjoy.
You can hear Polina Bemanov's complete piano bench recital as a From the Studio podcast at our website, spokanepublicradio.org, where this program as well resides, this program being Northwest Arts Review. As we mark the passage of an entire year plus since the COVID pandemic changed our lives, and we look forward to the gradual return of more normal conditions, the role of the arts in creating and maintaining our overall health is an important topic. Vern Windham visited with Sandpoint Conservatory Director Karin Wiedemeyer recently. Karin views the current reality through two different lenses. I have given, of course, a uh, uh, recent year a lot of thoughts, and um, my platform is slightly different. Yes, I am the director of the Music Conservatory, but my background is somewhat unique. Academically, I'm an archaeologist, so I'm fairly good in finding gold. <laughs> and um, artistically, I'm an opera singer, so I can say a loud message. And this message as such um, that I'd like to discuss, I'd like to give it as much vigor as possible because I can see truly the arts as a vehicle for us as a society where we are right now, helping us digest the experiences that we have been going through. And as an archaeologist, I always look uh, into the future. It's okay, what fingerprints are we going to leave behind or artifacts of our experience here that we will be finding and looking at 100 plus years from now? And what will that message be that we are going to give uh, to the future generations? So right now, um, I think it's a really good time because our experience right now is truly unique. And I think that what we are seeing and feeling is worth a message that we need to capture. And art tends to be a beautiful vehicle to create a window into, well, the past, looking at what people will be seeing um, in the future. How would you describe what we are seeing and feeling right now? Well, one of the things, of course, is that the duration of the time that involves, um, you know, the pandemic, uh, among other things, it's over a year. And that is a very, very long time to be exposed to this particular experience because it involves isolation, for example, which is not really what we're very good at. Humans tend to be communal beings, and to keep them in isolation over a long period of time is very, very difficult. From what I see, has created uh, inattention. I will see an uptick in aggression, anxiety, depression. So all of these outcomes are very apparent to me right now. I want to share one little blip that I saw. It, it was during the lockdown, and I came to the school, and there was nobody here, and there was nobody outside, and it was dead silent. It was really eerie, not a car, not a bird, no person, no tone, no nothing. And I felt like I had stepped through another portal or in a, to a different universe. And I noticed that our clocks in my office and in actually the foyer had stopped. And it's still to this time at 11.46. So this will be a special time for me. But I know that many people have felt probably the same. They've looked out of the window and say, okay, this is extraordinary. And it's not just 
for a moment, but it's for days or weeks or months at a time. And there is a deep emotional impact that we need to deal with um, and really begin to think of how can we express ourselves and how can we deal with that experience in a meaningful way. Maybe before you actually get into a prescription, talk a little <laughs> bit about the way you perceive that art you know, reaches us and interacts with us. Well, right now, um, you know, we, our, most of our interactions for a very long time have been one-dimensional, and that is through technology. Technology in itself uh, is not really interactive in the way as humans need to interact because it's so one-dimensional. And it's really very important that we are interacting in many different dimensions. And here, you know, of course, we can talk about art and painting, but uh, in music, for example, um, you know, when we are playing an instrument, when we are engaging with uh, our teachers or other students, and in any form, that way, it is multidimensional. That is extremely important for our mental health. And we have given that up for a very long period of time. And now we need to find our way back to it. What I notice is that we experience a huge uptick in interest. And this is why, and I talk to other institutions, organizations who see something alike. And I think that society is aware of that um, we need more than what we've had the last year, and that actually human interactions are of great value, and that we cannot reduce ourselves to screen size experience because it doesn't really reflect the world as it is. And our children are very much impacted by under thinking that the world they see is in that screen, and that is not really true. So the arts come in by really restoring multidimensional experiences. And music is very powerful. And then, of course, also, uh, it is reflective. Um, and then, of course, uh, it works on our creative skills. And that is uh, extraordinarily important right now, understanding that our human resources, that who we are, um, finding solutions for the problems that we are facing, we need to dig deep into our creative resources. You can hear Vern and Karen's complete conversation as a From the Studio podcast at SpokanePublicRadio.org. For the month of April, at long last, Spokane Symphony Orchestra music director James Lowe was able to travel to Spokane, meet again with his orchestra, and record a series of virtual programs. As he prepared to return home to Scotland, James visited with Vern Windham and shared aspects of this experience. For me, having an orchestra on stage in an empty hall is always a kind of a rather sad thing to, to, to watch. So I wanted to try and think of a way that we could bring everything a bit more alive. And so the idea was that each concert has a theme and we explore it in ideas as well as music. And we get great experts from the, from the Inland Northwest to come and talk with me about these ideas and thread these themes through and see how the same thing comes out in painting or in physics or in religion or in art. And you can see that these things are the expression in music the same way. The way we filmed has been very different. Ordinarily, you would have a very strict camera script and say in bar four, you go to the first oboe, in bar mm. eight, you go to the second bassoon, yada, yada. Um, what we've done instead is have about 15 cameras on stage, including now two flying cameras. They, of course, know the music. They come to all the rehearsals and 
before each you know each recording session we we work through who the important people are at what place but then it's really that they just film and then at the end we edit together the footage we have it's a much more collaborative way of working than normally it would be with with filming an orchestra and that's been another joy for me is you know channeling my kind of Cecil B. DeMille <laughs> um, proclivities with Don and uh, with the editor Hannah Sander and the producer Jennifer Gatz has been phenomenal. I mean, really an amazing team to work with. Uh, and it it does feel different. I think it gives, it gives it visually a different kind of energy than if it's a more kind of static production. But the best way of recording this was to record in batches. So rather than have here, here's one whole concert with just the strings, here's one with the winds and here's one with the brass, we would mix it up and so the themes would unify it rather than the instrumentation, which mm. meant that each week would be, you know, we'd record two Mozart symphonies for two different episodes, we'd record two different Haydn symphonies for different episodes. And we planned in advance the themes and the interview, who we would interview and how they would fit together. And for the most part, it's kind of just all fallen beautifully into place. Of course, that's not to say that we haven't hit snags and challenges and, and improvised on the fly a little bit. I think that's the case with any production like this that's, that's technically challenging. It's been really satisfying for me to, to start to see this grow episode by episode and this kind of this journey continue. And we're still, I mean, we've, although we've recorded everything now, we're still in the process of, of editing. We're about to release episode three. And I'm very excited about it. I think it's important, by the way, to say that these episodes are on-demand streaming for a year. Mm. So it's not if you've missed the first couple, you can still go back and watch them. And I would definitely start from the beginning, I think, because it is, uh, it, it is, it's an evolving journey, the whole, the whole process. Something that I think we're all very, very keen not to do is to script out any of the, any of the conversations. They were absolutely, they just recorded us for, for 15 minutes and edited together what they had. And I think that's the right way of doing it because, like you say, it keeps it fresh. It keeps it, it is just a conversation. And, um, one of the other elements that I wanted to do in this series is to highlight highlight our musicians individually and pull a few of them out because they all have not only most of them have incredible second skills, which is quite annoying, really. You know, we have a world class <laughs> photographer, we have all, all, all manner of amazing skill sets that are as well as the musical skill sets, and every individual in the orchestra has a, a lifetime of experience of of making music, and I wanted to them to be able to project some of that out to the to the audience too um, and again because if you're seeing people masked on stage it feels a little bit distant so it's another way of a little bit breaking down this this barrier you can find out more about the Spokane Symphony's at home series of concerts at their website spokanesymphony.org Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tevenin. Help today came from Chris Massini and Vern Windham. Thanks as well to Karin Wiedemeyer, James Lowe, Luis Rodriguez, and Polina Beimanov. Some vintage Mozart from the Spokane Symphony Orchestra takes us out. Please join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio. Spokane.